What's going on everyone? My name is Jordan and shout out to everybody joining us for our online service. I'm extremely grateful all the time for all of your participation and excitement, especially as things are starting to steamroll towards May 16th when we plan to start uh, in-person regathering as well as our live stream. But before we get started in today's message, I wanna pray for us. So Heavenly Father, God, you know us and you know what we need to hear. I pray that you would take my words and as incapable as I am, Lord, I pray that you would make this moment matter. God, for those of us who need comfort, comfort us. For those of us who need to wake up, give us a wake-up call. For those of us who want to learn something and need to learn something, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm getting to a weird point in my career where for the first time, like I, I am a pastor as long as I have been in the past an attorney. So the way I've thought about myself is that Jordan Rice was an attorney and I practiced law for about seven years and now I'm coming up on that mark where I've been practicing as a pastor for seven years as well. And let me tell you, there are some things about law that I will never miss and I'm not mad that I made the career change, but there are some things that I I really do, I do miss and it's kind of sad that I, I don't get a chance to do them anymore. And the number one thing I miss without a shadow of a doubt is I really miss being in a courtroom. Like I miss the adrenaline rush of being able to cross-examine someone. It is probably the most uh, adrenaline-filling thing that I I would do as uh, an attorney. And uh, I get excited just thinking about it because professionally, it's actually one of the best tactics and ways to get to the bottom of something. Now, the setup of all setups, whenever someone is cross-examining someone is this one statement. Is it fair to say? So I would be in court and I'd be setting up someone, I'd be listening patiently, waiting for them to finish what they were gonna say. And when it was my turn, I was gonna lead them down a series of questions, usually starting with, is it fair to say this? Now, when I was a practicing attorney, starting off questions and cross-examining people by saying, is it fair to say, that was my tactic, my, my way of engagement. The problem is I kind of carried some of my professional rules of engagement into my, my personal life, and uh, that does not work very well. Uh, I was using professional tactics to navigate my personal relationships. And uh, my wife and I, I'll say this, we're not, we're not big arguers. Uh, I like to get it into a little bit of a dust-up every now and then just to make sure the juices are still flowing. But for the most part, as long as I'm not hangry and as long as both of us have slept a decent amount in the last week, we usually argue probably a couple times a year. But in the beginning of our relationship, the way that I would approach our arguments really was like I was cross-examining her in the courtroom. And it's amazing that I (laughs) survived uh, this phase in in our marriage. Here's the thing that I've learned in this time. Personal relationships have to be navigated personally. Like you never wanna navigate or use tactics about professional encounters or business encounters in a, prof- in a personal relationship. Personal relationships have to keep the person at the forefront, not the thing in, 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 um, in dispute or not the thing that you want to get out of it. So uh, whenever my wife and I were arguing at first, um, you know, I would go into lawyer, lawyer mode and I would say, all right, Hey, babe, can I talk to you for a second? She would say, yeah. I said, okay, cool. So, Jessica, is that, is that your name? Am I, am I pronouncing it correctly, Jessica? Now, 
is it, is it fair to say that you value honesty? Yes, you do? Okay. And is it also fair to say, in your words, that you would define honesty that telling the truth, even if you had the right intention to do something, if you didn't do it, then like you still were in failure of that, right? So turning your attention to honor about May 16th, uh, 2013, do you recall that day? Do you remember us going out? Yeah, you remember that? Uh, do you remember saying that you were gonna be ready at 7 p.m.? You do. Okay, were you in fact ready at 7 p.m.? No, you weren't, right, ugh. This is, this is interesting. So, you say you value honesty, right? But you didn't do what you said you were gonna do. Is that correct? Okay, nothing further. Now, that's when the punches started to fly. No, I'm kidding. Uh, needless to say, that argument, that conversation did not end well, right? Like whenever you drag out lawyer tactics and personal conversations, it's never ever gonna end well at all. It is never a good idea to try to manage a personal relationship like you would a professional one. Now, all of us have a lot of relationships, some personal and some business and some professional ones, right? So we have uh, friends, lovers, lovers and friends, um, parents, kids, family members. And with a personal relationship, the most important thing is the priority of the person. Like whenever you're navigating a personal relationship, it's never, even if it's an argument, even if it's a disagreement, it should never be about the thing, but rather the person. Uh, in my house now, we have a couple of rules for our kids. And um, I was talking to my oldest son the other day and he, in his own world, would gladly start to eat candy at 7.30 a.m. And we have rules about when it's okay and appropriate to have treats and snacks and candy. We want them to develop the habits of eating um, the right things, even though we don't do that. Um, but every rule that exists in our house now is not about the rule, right? Like it's not about candy, it's about him. Now, when we have personal uh, rules that govern our personal relationships, it has to be, and we know this so well in ourselves, that they absolutely should be about the person and not about a specific, a specific thing. Now, keeping rules, here's a big part. Him keeping the rules don't change his place in our family, right? So he doesn't obey a lot of the rules that we have in our family. And it's not that him obeying the rules, today he's a son, but Thursday he's kind of not our son because he didn't keep the rules. His footing in our family is secure and stable irrespective of his compliance with the house rules. Personal relationship trumps everything that we want him to do. Now, it doesn't make what we want him to do insignificant. It just means that his relationship with us truly has nothing to do with his adherence to the rules. Now, professional relationships are much different. For any business or professional relationship, your standing in that relationship is completely 100% determined on whether or not you hold up your end of the bargain. Two of the most uh, common professional relationships we have are with work and with school. So professional relationships are very different. They all aim at a thing to do and two of these relationships being school and work. So your boss or your teacher might ask you about how your weekend was and they might be a kind and caring individual, but really it doesn't matter how your weekend was or how you relate to them. Like if you don't show up to school and if you don't pay your tuition, 
And if you don't attend the correct percentage of classes, then you're going to be out. Your standing in any institution depends on your adherence to the rules. Same thing is true with your job. All of us have job descriptions. And at some point, it might not happen immediately, but at some point, if you're not doing what your job requires and you're not doing it well, then they're going to let you go. Personal relationships are about the person. Business relationships are about the thing to do. Now, the great tragedy in many of our lives, and certainly in my life, was that I did not limit my treating uh, relationships in business matters just to the way I was cross-examining my wife. That, that, that would have been enough. But uh, in so many ways, in my relationship with God, I treated it like it was a business relationship. And if I'm being honest, sometimes there's a big temptation to continue to do that, that I just approach God like, if I do the thing, I'm in, and if I don't do the thing, I'm out. Almost like God is my economics professor, or that God is my boss, and I have a quarterly review coming up, and if I don't do a good job, then I'm out. Here's what I learned in all of my life, uh, spiritually and practically. It is never a good idea to manage a personal relationship like it's a professional one. The rules don't apply. The goal is different. God is not interested in being your economics professor. God is not interested in being your boss who gives you quarterly reviews. The way that God wants to approach us, and this is a huge thing that we're going to see today in Scripture, the way that God wants to approach you is in a family, personal sense. God comes to us not in a business sense, but in a personal sense. God wants a real personal relationship, and that relationship needs to be governed, managed, pursued, uh, and evaluated personally. So we should never treat or manage or pursue relationships, personal ones, like we would um, a professional relationship. So uh, one of the most profound scriptures in the, in the Bible actually comes right before a segment of scripture that most of us are familiar with. So most of us are familiar with something called the Ten Commandments. Biggie said the Ten Crack Commandments. If you don't know the, the ones in Exodus, I'm sure you've heard of those. Uh, but the Ten Commandments are things that we've seen all throughout uh, majority, our, our culture and movies and plays. And uh, most of us have an understanding of what these things are. Uh, don't lie, don't steal, honor your parents, don't root for the patriots, things that are universally unacceptable, uh, un unacceptable, things that we should not do. And there, there are no brownie points if you could name all 10, but I would be interested to know how many of you can list all, all, all 10 of the 10 commandments. Now, because of these 10 commandments, a lot of us, we skip over this one really key verse right before the Ten Commandments that frames the way we should understand the way we should interact with rules, the way we should approach rules. Now, one of the things that's probably the most interesting thing is that I get a chance to talk to so many people about their faith, and the vast majority of people I speak to treat their relationship with God like a business and a professional one. They want to know what do they need to do to be accepted? What do they need to do to be loved? What do they need to do to be included? And it's this constant bartering system of, did I do enough to make God accept me and uh, not reject me? This verse we're going to see here in Exodus uh, is going to really reframe the way we see God and the way we understand our, our, our relationship with him with respect to rules. So here it goes in Exodus 20. We're in the book of Exodus again. It says, then God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land 
of Egypt out of the place of slavery. And then God gets into the Ten Commandments, the first one being, do not have other gods besides me. So before God gets into any rules, God gets into relationship. And he says these words that if you don't hear anything else I'm saying before or after this, hear these words. It says, I am the Lord your God. This is the language of biblical covenantal relationship. He says, I, I am yours. I am yours in verse 2. This is the familial language of relationship. And I never want any of us trying to manage our personal relationship with God like it's a business or a professional one. Now, this scripture shows us a number of things. And the first thing it shows us really is the, the, the real nature of our relationship with God. So th this statement, I am yours, is hearkening back to something that the, the culture in Israel would have understood, but modern people really don't understand it because we don't, we don't navigate in this thing called covenants. Like that's not something that we understand too well. The closest thing that we have in our society that resembles a, a covenant, a biblical covenant, is marriage. And a lot of people don't even take marriage in the way that it was meant to be with respect to that. So what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, the dictionary defines it as a formal, indefinite, and self-giving promise of two parties to one another. So in this case, I think actually one of the best ways to really describe what a covenant is, is to talk about what it's not. So a covenant is not a contract. And all of us have signed contracts, been engaged with different negotiations surrounding contracts. Whenever you sign a contract, if it's for a phone, a phone service, an apartment, a lease, whatever it is, you are expecting to get something, right? So you sign your phone service, and then if they don't deliver, if T-Mobile doesn't deliver the Wi-Fi speeds that they promised, you call them beefing and yelling at some poor uh, customer service representative uh, who did nothing wrong. They did nothing to you. Why are you taking that out on them? Um, but the nature of it is we understand that when I enter into agreement, I should be getting something in return. I'm paying my money. They're supposed to be giving me service. But a covenant is not like that at all. In a covenant, it's personal. You enter into a covenant expecting to get someone in return. So you don't go after it to try to get something in return, but rather to get someone in return. And in this case, namely, it is God. So contracts are based on an if-then mentality. If you do this, then I will do this. And in the contract, you are only bound if the other party does their part. But in a covenant, you make unconditional promises, unconditional promises that whether or not the other person does what they need to do, you are there for them and you are promising yourself to give yourself to them. And when God says in this scripture in here in Exodus that I am yours, He's saying that I'm, he's saying the covenantal language of an unconditional promise through the highs and the lows, he's theirs. Now, if you were to fast forward many books in the Old Testament, you see this extremely tumultuous journey with God and his people so much that they do. And God always is committed to his people, even through straight up rebellion from them. Uh, another thing that contracts are, contracts are for a limited time then made for 12 months, 24 months, whatever the period of time is, but covenants are indefinite. Those relationships are permanent. And uh, lastly, this is a big one. This is what we see here in the text. A contract is motivated by desire to get something, but a covenant is motivated by a desire 
to give something. So when God says in Exodus 20 and 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, what theologians call this is the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And people have said it much better than I understand it. So I'll just kind of read some of these theological nerds. Here's what they say. They say the prologue is this part of the covenant that explains how the parties came to be related. So how God and his people came to be related. Now this is the verse where it says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now here's a dope part. It says, by having rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, God is laying a claim on his chosen people. Such a claim is called a Hased relationship. And this is so dope, y'all. Loyalty required in response to loyalty shown. This is what rules are all about. For everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, who's in relationship with God, this is, you can sum up every rule that God requires of us in this one sentence. God requires loyalty from us because of the loyalty shown to us. Uh, if you want to understand the nature of rules and relationship with God, it is loyalty required in response to loyalty shown. So ancient Israelites believed that if someone did something for someone else, what that did is it created a lasting covenantal obligation one to another. Now, if that is true, that God is ours and God requires loyalty from us, not obedience for the sake of obedience, but rather loyalty because of what he has done for us, then that just changes everything. One thing that it absolutely changes is the way that you and I approach our failures, our shortcomings, our wrongdoings, our sins, our weaknesses, and it takes it away from what did I do, but who did I harm in the process? Now, in a contract, what happens is disobedience ends the contractual relationship, and, uh, but in the covenant, it's not that. God is not just uh, concerned about our specific activity, but rather our loyalty and our fidelity to him. So what God is not concerned about, God is not primarily concerned about disobedience. He's primarily concerned about disloyalty. And um, it's not a strict adherence to a set of things, but rather loyalty to him and as a person. So I was thinking about this this morning. If it's true, like the gospel message, if it's true, that God created us for good. And humans in our, in our nature, we turned away from God and we turned to sin, that God promised us so many good things and we turned and did it our own way. And that God himself comes down in the person of Christ and dies on the cross for our sins to take away all of the, the pain, the suffering, the punishment that was just due to ourselves. And he takes it on himself and he really laid it on his back what is the only rightful response to an act like that? Like, what is the only rightful response? It is loyalty. Loyalty is required of us because loyalty was shown. Now, all throughout the New Testament, authors talk about the Exodus being the physical representation of our spiritual reality, that once upon a time, we had our own Egypt of sin in our lives, and God came down at his own expense and freed us from it. Now, if this is true, then your failures and your shortcomings are not just things that we have done wrong, but rather they fracture the relationship. Case in point, I've talked many times about this. I am a recovering people pleaser, and by the grace of God, I'm making tremendous steps in that regard. But there have been so many times in my life where I could remember kind of fudging the truth a little bit so that people would 
look at me in a better light. Now, what would happen when I would lie to someone? Um, what was going on? It's not just about the thing or the act of lying, that lying is wrong. Of course, we know that. But rather, that in that moment, that person's opinion of me mattered more to me than what God says about me. So I couldn't bear to stand their disapproval because I wasn't really truly feeling and uh, being filled by God's approval of me. That what I wanted in that moment was them to think good of me more than what I wanted God to think of me. And it's not about disobedience, it's really about disloyalty. So in the New Testament, uh, a man named Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he talks about this concept of the way we should approach our failures and our shortcomings and our sins. And it's not just to feel bad about doing something, but rather that we grieve the heart of God in the process and we, we, we frustrate our relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 9 and 10, it said, uh, 7 rather, 9 and 10, Paul is saying, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. And here's the point that Paul makes. He distinguishes two different types of grief. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Now, essentially what Paul is saying in this scripture is that godly grief, to be grieved over how our actions have harmed our relationship with God, that leads to salvation without regret. And Paul's saying that one of these real true experiences is to experience the, the grief of not what did I do wrong, but how did that wrong harm the person I was in relationship with? Uh, many of you, I'm sure, have felt the pain of really disappointing someone close to you. Maybe it's your spouse, your kids, uh, whoever it is. And to see the harm that you've done someone that you love, man, it just grieves you. And it takes your mind off of just, I yelled, I did this, I did X, Y, and Z. It takes your mind off of the action and it puts it on the relationship as the first and foremost thing to be concerned about. Now, this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. And this is what changes the nature of everything. If we are in a covenantal relationship with God, then it's not just about the action, but how our actions damage and separate us from our relationship with God. But worldly grief is a completely different category altogether. Worldly grief, it says it only leads to death and it's really characterized by being really self-centered it's all about self-pity and I can't believe that I did this. Personal embarrassment. What are other people gonna think about me? A full of shameful regret that I'll never be able to forget what I've done or a lot of unbelieving guilt that you and I can't forgive ourselves in those moments. Worldly sorrow really is just feeling sorry for ourselves, but godly sorrow takes it beyond the action of what we did and takes it our eyes and puts it on a relationship that is being harmed. Now, if it's true that God is ours, and to take that statement to heart that I am yours, that we're in a covenantal relationship with God for everybody that placed their faith in him, then of course it should redefine the way we understand God and it should, way that we understand, um, it should also redefine the way we understand our shortcomings and our sins, not as just actions isolated, but rather things that harm a relationship. But it also, if this is true, man, it gives us so much security Right? Like, so my relationship with my son, he can do anything and he's still my son. Even though the Knicks are back 
if he were to start to root for the Nets one day, as grievous as that would be, he's still my son. Now I say that jokingly, but there's truly absolutely nothing he can do, him or his little brother. There is nothing that they could ever, ever do that would remove them from me being their father, them being their son, them being my son. Now there's so many things that they can do that would absolutely really frustrate our relationship, but we're in a covenant. Uh, Our relationship is not based on their behavior for any specific day and what they do matters for sure. But my rules in their life are, are not to create a relationship. One pastor, I heard him say it like this. He says, rules are confirmation of a relationship. They never create one. Rules are confirmation of a relationship, not a condition for one. So it gives us a great deal of security that if this is true, um, we are in a covenantal relationship with God and a bad week, uh, a bad month, a bad year, inconsistent biblical Bible reading, inconsistent church attendance, tsk, tsk, tsk. Uh, None of these things take you away from the secure hands of God. This morning, as I was getting ready for today's message, I was going through a scripture in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 5, and it just spoke to me so wonderfully. The author Paul says this, may the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. That's my prayer for you. May the Lord direct your heart to God's love and Christ's endurance. It does not say what I often feel inside that may the Lord direct my heart to God's standards and my sins. It does not say that. But to be in a covenantal relationship with God, to hear these words, I am yours, and that I am his as well. Man, those words are as sweet as a honey lavender ice cream from Sugar Hill Creamery. So may the Lord direct our hearts to God's real love and Christ's endurance. You know, one of the the things, the most profound examples I've seen of love and endurance, I've actually seen in family court years ago when I was uh, back there practicing. And uh, there was one young man who kept on getting arrested. And I told his mother when we first started all of the court proceedings that the children who have parental representation in court Uh, right or wrong, they tend to fare better with the judges. So uh, his mother made a decision that she was going to be in court every single time with him. And at first it was pretty good, but uh, man, that child really needed so much therapeutic intervention and he really started to spin out of control. And what started as one small arrest um, really steamrolled into several arrests and so much complicated stuff going on. And instead of just being in court, you know, every now and then he was getting arrested and having warrants and then running away. And it felt like he was in court every week. Now, eventually, because his mother's job was a business and professional relationship, not a personal one, there was a limit to how many times she could miss and still be in good standing. So they let her go. And I'll never forget one, uh, one day in court, Uh, I walked out to the waiting room to get ready to tap um, him on the shoulder and to tap her on the shoulder to tell them to come in the courtroom. Man, I looked out in the waiting room and she was just like completely knocked out. Now in a waiting room in this family court, it was live, like it was very loud. And for her to be sleeping, like snoring, knocked out, I knew something, I knew something was wrong. As we got out of the court that day, I started asking her, hey, how are you feeling? How are things? And she said, honestly, I am exhausted. I got fired from my last job and the only job that I could get 
was doing custodial work at night, and she had come straight from working like a 12-hour shift, cleaning up straight to court to be present with her son. You know, I've started to think that what if, what if the love and endurance of God is real? Then maybe that means that God is much more like that mother who abides with her son, despite the fact that he was making all of these terrible decisions, despite the fact that he was ruining his life and everybody connected to him. What if God is more like a mother sleeping in a family courtroom, uh, waiting room, and less like your economics professor? less like your boss, less like someone who mandates that you do specific things. What if God's message to us is, I'm yours? How would that change the way you view God? Now, for those of us who, are, uh, who have already placed our faith in Christ, this should be hopefully something that re-centers your attention, your focus, your pursuit of God. Like, I don't want you reading the Bible this week to get something, to learn something, but to, to encounter someone. Um, but for those of you who may not have ever um, come to God in a way to have a, a real formal relationship with him, listen, the gospel tells us that it is good news of what God has done for us. And he invites us to respond to that with, with our commitment, loyalty given in order for loyalty shown. So here's what I want to do for you. I want to I wanna pray for you. I and mean, I want you to pray with me if you're in this spot. It's a prayer of commitment if you've never done so. And for those of you who have already placed your faith in Christ, uh, I want you to pray along with me as well. And you can just rejoice in what God has already done in your life. So, dear Lord, I am I'm convicted. I'm sorry for my sins and I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Lord, I repent and I ask you to come into my life and to take control. I make a commitment to follow you, and I trust you to be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for those of you who uh, prayed and want to make a next step in your faith, if you just prayed that prayer with us, here's what I would love for you to do. Um, I would love to have a, one of our pastors at our church walk alongside you as you uh, walk this path of commitment to try to give God your best, knowing that God has already given us his best. So you can do that in a couple of ways. You can fill out a connection card um, and get the information right there, or you can text Harlem to 94000 and someone will reach back out to you and talk about what your next steps could be to place your faith in Christ. But for all of us, I want us meditating on this God who comes to us, not to give us more rules, but who promises us that he is, he is ours. And we should never, ever, ever manage our personal relationships like we would a professional or a business one. Let me pray for us. So Heavenly Father, um, I pray that we would take to heart your words to us that I'm yours, that you are ours, Lord, that you are coming to us to give us uh, a relationship with you. And God forbid, God, please, don't help, please help us to not turn it into a professional one. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.